Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Lisa, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Uh, I have to say it's very uh, depressing right now that it is pitch black outside as we record at uh, 5 o'clock Central Time. But uh, thanks thanks for joining us on this doomy, gloomy Tuesday. No problem. I know we should expect it. I actually saw a meme today that said, try to go the next uh, three months without mentioning how depressing it is that it's dark early. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, yep, nope, it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> We're too depressed. <laughs> I mean, it was 340 and I started to notice the sun was just very, very aggressively going down. That just oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know what else we're supposed to talk about. I work by my window and I don't usually have like a ton of lights on because I have, you know, such big window space, luckily, by my office. And I just noticed myself like at all of a sudden at like 430, I'm like working in the dark. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, but thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think we'd love it if you could just kick it off and let us know what you guys are working on over at uh, Garmentier. Am I saying it right, Garmentier? Yeah, I, I feel like everybody has their own way of pronouncing it. So I really like to hear the fancy ways. People are like, oh, Garmentier. Like, it's like a Rorschach <laughs> test. You just learn all you need to know about somebody by how they pronounce it. <laughs> exactly. We just call it Garmentier. It actually came from the word clothier. Um, but it started as Curate. We renamed it in 2019. And um, a little bit about what we do, we're a clienteling platform that helps retailers and salespeople grow sales. And uh, that's it's really um, through delivering ultra personalized shopping experience. So it helps them drive sales and brand loyalty and engagement and can kind of merge that brick and mortar and e-commerce experience. Um, so, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just curious. So, so you mentioned retailers are, are these kind of the the blue chip, um, larger retailers like the Nordstroms of the world, who are kind of your, I guess, ideal customers that you guys are focusing on. We're not focusing on those customers at least yet. Um, so, my background actually was at Trump Club. I was there for eight years, um, building sales teams and training personal stylists and selling myself. Um, but <clears throat> so Nordstrom is a very familiar partner to me. <laughs> But uh, we're really focusing on D2C brands that are anywhere between, you know, if you want the wider range, it's like 25 to, or I guess even five to, you know, 500 salespeople, whereas those companies have a little bit larger, like, you know, anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000. The main reason we're doing that is because we're actually focusing on more plug and play solutions. So Shopify, people who are using Shopify, e-commerce platforms, um, same 
with Salesforce Commerce Cloud, WooCommerce, et cetera, instead of having something that's custom built. And most department stores, those much larger retailers have completely custom built storefronts. Got it. What would you say was kind of the founding motivation behind the company? I mean, you mentioned you spent time at Trunk Club. Uh, I would love to hear kind of what was the inception for this idea. Absolutely. Well, so I've always been in sales, but the North Star of my career has actually always been delivering a more holistic customer experience is what I like to, you know, kind of call it. So what that means is considering your customers sort of entire lifestyle and purchase ecosystem and world around them, not just trying to sell them products. Right. It means that becoming their number one resource. It means never having a question you can't answer. It means going above and beyond and building a relationship and sort of helping them with services that are peripheral to your products. And I spent a lot of time at Trunk Club honing that skill, but also training probably upwards of probably almost a thousand stylists on it, um, which was super fun for me. And I think what I learned time after time is that after training all these people, building these relationships a million times over, there's really not a scalable way to ensure that every customer can receive this same like top tier customer experience that I was training people to give, right? For one, um, <clears throat> retail's current customer journey is only geared towards selling new products. It's not really geared towards the customer's entire lifestyle and purchase ecosystem. They don't know what you have from other places. They don't know what trips you're going on, this, that, the other thing. It's not, it's not really lifestyle associated, right? And secondly, if you're working with a salesperson, the quality of the customer experience has always been totally dependent on upon like the skills of that person at hand. So the goal was to take that exceptional sort of service-based approach and experience and turn it into scalable selling technology. Every time that I would do trainings, you know, our execs would say, oh, it's just the boobs method. Like this was this was just something that you could train on. This is just a you thing. And I was thinking, actually, the majority of things that I'm telling these people to do are completely supported by, if not automated by technology. I'm like helping them make PowerPoints that they're selling $16,000 worth of clothing clothing in over email. And I'm like, there's a better way. So, you know, I think, I think that that was kind of the determination there and the excitement for every customer to be able to have a luxury experience. Every transaction can be super personalized and feel like personal shopping. So uh, I'd love to double click into, um, love to double click into the features offered, kind of the end to end journey. Um, if if you are partnered with a DTC brand that's that's using Shopify, and I'm a consumer, you know what can I expect from from an experience uh, where Garmentier is involved? Yeah. So from an enterprise standpoint, um, <clears throat> what retailers would get from our software is basically four components. There's CRM, which is sort of like, what do we know about the customer? There's clienteling, which is how can we best use what we know to build a better relationship, right? And then there's personalized selling, which is how can I sell to the customer in a way that's meaningful to them? And then there's our consumer-facing app, which is how do I make the experience easy and fun and make my customers want to engage with me more often? So those are the four pieces of the puzzle that we offer. There are other um, clienteling platforms that are out there. Um, they typically connect to another CRM, and they're a little bit more lightweight on the lifestyle data aspect of it. But what our sort of bread and butter 
is and our differentiator is is really the customer experience that comes along with it because like i mentioned like that's what i'm ultimately focused on right you improve the customer experience you have them an exceptional you you help them deliver an exceptional experience the clothes the furniture the you know exercise equipment whatever that will sell itself so i think um I think that's really what we're focused on, which is why our consumer app that gets white labeled is a really important piece to this. And it's sort of what consumers use that's on the other end of the clienteling software that the retailers are using. And you you spent, you know, a meaningful portion of your career at at Trunk Club. It seems like a lot of the foundations of sales, uh, you know, maybe you, you sort of honed your skills there. But were there any kind of learnings and takeaways that, that you had from your experience there? Um, it looks like you started around 2014 and, you know, that company just grew so quickly. And it was such a success story, especially for, you know, kind of the Chicago startups, you know, ecosystem. But we'd love to hear any kind of lessons or takeaways you had from that experience. Yeah. So I actually started there in 2010. Um, and there were nine of us. So I would think I was the ninth tire, which is pretty great since my lucky number's nine. Um, but yeah, there were a million different takeaways. I think um, at various stages of the company, those were different things. And I remember getting uh, offered by one of my former clients to go start a company in 2016. And we had gotten acquired in 2014. And I just remember that was right when I had gotten into um, a little bit of a higher leadership role. And I just remember saying to him, like, I haven't learned enough yet. I wouldn't do you justice. I need to learn a little bit more. So I think one of the things is getting to see the evolution of a company from nine people through to, you know, upwards of a thousand and, you know, exiting and kind of merging into another company. There's so many different stages that happen there, but, um, there was definitely an element of scrappiness that was so up my alley. And that is why I like doing this. It's why I like building businesses. Once everything's all figured out, I'm kind of like, all right, I don't want to be the person who's like necessarily the cog in the wheel. I want to go figure out difficult problems and and help us solve them. Um, But I actually learned, I think sales is funny because I learned sales process for sure and management. Um, But I think that sales is, it's something that's a hard skill to hone if you're not sort of born with the gene. And so I think that what I actually ended up learning a lot more about was the product aspect and what needs to be there in order for a salesperson to do an exceptional job and what needs to be there from a customer experience perspective in order for the customer to be super loyal and trust you and all of that. I think that was really what my kind of like key learnings were while I was there. And some of it was natural and some of it was like, oh, wow. But from the product perspective, that was definitely a learned thing. I worked with the tech team, you know, from time to time on building tools for the sales team, specifically for custom clothing, especially, which was the uh, division I was running sales wise. But it was it was really interesting. Um, I mean, I was drawing wireframes for them from like the you know first week or two that I was there, but I didn't know that that's what they were. It was like, probably <laughs> what you think this screen should look like. And I was like, okay. Uh, so I think from that perspective, that was amazing. The other thing that I'll just say really quick is you really learn the value of the people that you hire. Um, we had amazing, amazing hiring in the early days. Um, one of the execs that we had was Colette Donegan, and I still talk to her, and she's amazing. But she, you know, helped us build a team that was exceptional. So did Brian 
and having the right people is everything. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, while you're describing that experience, um, you touched on something that I think is a really interesting topic because, you know, from the venture side, you're kind of looking at founders and you're analyzing all the tools they have. Um, and the ability to sell is, is something that I think, um, I don't know. I don't think it gets talked about enough in today's ecosystem. And I think especially because a lot of the seminal founders for the 2010s were very kind of product focused, you know, some of the social network um, companies that that sort of, you know, uh, are the biggest success stories. You know, those people were very product and very technical oriented when they started. Um, but did you find your, during your time during Trunk Club, as you were spending more time in sales, did you realize somewhere along the way there that I'm, I'm sort of destined to be a CEO? I, I know I want to run my own thing someday. And I know these sales skills are really going to help propel me to that role. You know, what's interesting about thinking about founding a startup, some people think I want to be a CEO. I didn't really think about it that way. I thought about it as I want this to exist. I want everybody to have access to having a luxury experience, even if they're buying a t-shirt from The Gap. I want every customer to feel special. I want every salesperson to be able to execute on it. I want to be able to like actually serve the customer in a more holistic way. That's what I wanted. And when, you know, you're driven and you can sell, I think sometimes those types of things come along with it. But I have to say, I don't know that I was, oh, sorry, that's my ice machine. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I was really aware at the outset of like what a CEO does, right? I don't, I don't think that you ever get a peek into that. And there's different types of CEOs out there. There's some who are more operational. There's some who are very sales focus there. You know what I mean? So I think I wasn't really thinking I want to go be a CEO, but knowing now what the CEO is responsible for. Yeah. I think it's a good, I think it's a good fit. I think I've got a lot of growing to do as do we all. You, you, and you mentioned there too, uh, bringing that experience to customers. Um, Sarah Tavel at Benchmark has this kind of great mental framework that she goes through when she looks at consumer startups. And you know, one of her favorite kind of signs, early indicators of success is a is a company that brings an experience that's usually reserved for um, the higher end consumers or the sort of the upper upper class, and kind of can bring that experience to uh, to, to sort of everybody and bring it in such a way where it's ten x better almost. Um, is that kind of is that sort of fit with what you think you're trying to do at Garmentier? Absolutely, I think like just the idea alone that every customer deserves the luxury of a personal shopping experience. I think that is what I've always felt, right? And the the customers that I was working with, they were luxury, right? The book of business that I had built at Trunk Club when I was selling um, was very small and very focused on higher end clientele. And that's how I intentionally built it. But it shouldn't, that's the experiences I was able to give them, the assistance, the styling, the help, the advice, the consultation, the friendship, the relationship, all of it, that shouldn't be reserved only for the 1%. Um, that should be how anyone feels when they're shopping all of the time. And I think as a consumer, you know, myself, you know, we all get targeted in a million different places for a million different things all the time. You have a million emails in your inbox telling you buy this shirt promo here, da, 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 da. and it, it sort of comes at you from all angles. And if it gets to come to you on your terms where you have this like home base for shopping and where there's actual resources there and it's actually helpful, like that's such a different level of experience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, so full disclosure. Uh, I didn't really know what Trunk Club was when I was a junior in college. So I signed up <laughs> one time, <laughs> and I and I showed up to the stylist in the meeting, and and she was great. Uh, and then I kind of got the bill and realized I'm a little out of my depth here. I don't know. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that <laughs> happens a lot. Um, but that also okay. So that's a perfect example of a misstep on the customer experience side. Part of delivering an exceptional experience is getting a feel for that customer's price range and budget. And like that makes the customer feel heard and known and feel comfortable and trust you. And so like, that's a perfect example of something retailers aren't doing right now. They're not asking, what are you comfortable with? They're not asking you that. And so they, they have no way of gaining that sort of trust out of the gates. And so those are the types of things that were, you know, bent on making sure that every retailer can do for a customer to gain their trust and to be a resource um, instead of having to feel so transactional every time. Totally. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. And to that effect, I'd love to hear kind of what progress you guys have made uh, throughout 2021 and kind of your, your distribution or your go-to-market strategy um, for, you know, the next, uh, the next year. Yeah, absolutely. So the business that we have is really interesting for a myriad of reasons. One of it is, you know, we wanted to build this platform and I wanted to bootstrap it because this was my first time founding a company and I wanted to make sure it worked before I asked people for money. (laughs) So we built it first so that basically like solo sellers or independent stylists could use it. I was passionate about independent personal stylists anyway. I've always been passionate about styling. So we figured let's build this awesome tool for them. And we'll, you know, if it, if it works, if we do a great job with it, then we'll put it in the hands of retail, you know, teams and they can use it as well. Um, And obviously the mechanics might be slightly different, but overall it's the same platform. It's a white labeled version of our, you know, platform that solo sellers use. So essentially we have two user types, solo sellers who are independent personal stylists um, that we started off with, and then enterprise sales teams. And 2021 has been largely focused on prepping our product for the enterprise customer, right? Being able to make that um, next level step to say, hey, your team can use this too. And it was really exciting to us in 2020. I mean, we were pitching all these retailers for partnerships on the solo seller side because <clears throat> they can sell through various retailers on our platform the same way that like an enterprise could use it just for their own brand. Um, but we're pitching all these retailers and they were saying, wait, my own sales team doesn't even have these tools. When can I use this? When can our, our brand needs this? You know, And so it was very encouraging to be asked for our product every single time we talked to a retailer by our target customer. So we've been kind of working really hard to get that side of the business prepped and ready. And now we are um, in the stage of launching enterprise with a handful of pilot partners who are essentially going to be our first enterprise accounts. We're super excited about it. And then we have a couple of bigger accounts that we're planning to onboard in um, early Q2 of 2022. So right now is very much like we're, we're getting it out there. We're going, you know, to make sure that we have all of the product things that we know are going to be issues or road bumps or any of that ironed out, but we're really going to go more full tilt with enterprise in terms of selling in Q2 through Q4 of 2022. 
That's awesome. And you you talked about um, bootstrapping up to this point. Just curious, you know, financing needs in 2022, how you guys are kind of looking at your financing roadmap. Yeah. So um, we have been <clears throat> kind of going through and redoing all of our projections that we had for 2023 to 2025, which is so funny to ask like a really baby startup for like five year projections, but we have them. Um, but either way, um, so right now we have a round that's open that we didn't close. We have a note that's open to two and a half million and we've raised 1.3, almost 1.4 of it. Um, we could have gone and, you know, finished closing that. But like I was telling you a little bit earlier, um, we really wanted to get our enterprise product out there and be able to show some traction. We had been pitching to VCs that were looking for that traction. Um, we, I don't think we were talking to early enough stage people. <laughs> so we were like, fine, you want traction? I'll go get some traction. Watch this. So um, we just decided to, you know, instead of going and pitching to other groups, we're like, why don't we just focus on selling this product and getting it out there and getting it in people's hands and having them use it and measuring it? Because we already know it works. We already have a user set that is the basically the prototype of a retail salesperson. Um, they're just independent and they're a little bit more entrepreneur. Well, they are entrepreneurs. So they're a little bit more driven to do things on their own accord sometimes. But for the most part, they really sell in the same way. So, and they definitely interact with customers in the same way that we want sales associates to. So I think, you know, from attraction perspective on the product and from metrics on the product and knowing, you know, how successful that is, we've actually got a lot of info and a lot of data. We just don't have any recurring revenue from these enterprises yet, which is what we need to show people like you. So is that, yeah, so I'm now just curious, is the, uh, is the pricing model, assuming it's kind of a SaaS-based business or is it, is it, is there an enterprise tier? How, how does the kind of the pricing model work out? Yeah. So solo sellers are 79 a month and then enterprise sales teams are 35 to 75 a month cost per seat. Um, and it just depends on the plan you choose and the size of your team, right? So pretty much same as like a Salesforce or a HubSpot from a pricing model standpoint. And then there's an integration fee. And um, I, I'm, I'm curious about in the long run and, and, and how you guys are thinking about, you know, establishing a moat, establishing defensibility. Um, how, how are you thinking about that in the future and kind of the competitive landscape? Oh, we've got this crushed. This is the one thing I feel like we are um, we are really excited about and that can only come from my crazy brain, Matt. Um, <laughs> so it really, it really does have more to do with the customer experience, right? The whole idea about this, like clienteling platforms solve one part of the equation, right? They solve the equation of being able to have your salespeople reach out and be relevant potentially in other channels. Not all clienteling platforms do that, but like to basically pursue intentional business and be more productive and et cetera. Um, but what our platform is doing, I think, aside from like the creative selling aspect with this personalized digital content and all that stuff is really delivering a, a more holistic experience. So you think about the customer uh, facing app, that is certainly going to be our biggest differentiator. It's definitely going to be our moat. I think it already is. Um, and the <laughs> ideation from it came from this was exactly what I would have wanted my customers to have when I was styling. And I think this is where my um, expertise in the industry really benefits us. My, you know, length of time in it, testing out, training tons of different people, seeing gajillions of transactions and, you know, sales and all that. But it was like, here's all of, here's the journey 
that you need to go through when you're really treating this, you know, selling to your customer as a service, you need to do discovery. You need to understand, you know, their, their preferences, but you also need to understand them as a human and what are they scared of and what do they feel? What do they want to project? You know, you need to understand what do they have right now in their closet? And this goes, this is the same for furniture. This is the same for anything else. Right. But it's like, how am I supposed to sell to you if I don't know what you already have? If I don't know what you need, if I don't know what price points you're comfortable with, if I don't know that you hate this color or you're allergic to this fabric, how am I supposed to do? And then, you know, you only get a certain amount of products you can suggest before someone's like, they don't get me. Right. So I think for us, it's really going to be that customer experience part where the customer feels hyper known and catered to and sort of pampered, even if they are not, like I mentioned, in that 1%. And it's really also going to be the data that you can collect from that um, to make their experience better, not to just like target them, but to like make their experience exceptional. Yeah, that's such a great point, actually. Now that I think back to my trunk club, short-lived trunk club days. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, my, I, my long-lived ones. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, so I mean, I I churned because it just I was a college kid, and obviously way too out well, of my yeah. uh, my budgetary zone. But exactly, and like, was there a certain amount of boxes that you knew or stylists know they have, like in terms of okay, like. We have to get them hooked by box number three or else they're going to churn or, or the data says they'll churn. And I guess like for a stylist, you're kind of whittling down like process of elimination, right? Is like, okay, they hated that shirt. They sent it back. Now we know not to send them something like that. But it's also a dual-sided kind of double-edged sword because, you know, that's valuable data for you to have as the stylist. You can make better decisions in the future. But also that means they, you know, your reputation as a stylist might take a hit. I, I guess that's kind of a, a conundrum that I that I would imagine you had to see all the time at Trunk Club. Yes and no. And I'll tell you why. And our sales ops team that I'm so close with a lot of people from is probably going to kill me for saying this. But I think that those metrics were there, but not heavily exposed to the sales team in a way that they could take action on them. So um, I don't believe they were the sales team was as as capable or maybe as good at, maybe they were communicated in ways I didn't know, um, as weaving the at weaving those sort of like company initiatives and those sort of, um, you know, KPIs into their strategies of selling with people. But uh, I think that there's always a balance, right? And only the really good salespeople, this is still, there is some element of like really good salespeople will know this. But I think like what you have to understand is that the relationship is what's most important. And when you make it fun for the customer to engage with you, and when you become the resource, like I mentioned, you don't have to sell because they come to you. They ask you for things. They say, hey, what about this? What about this? And it is about being able to answer questions on a one-off basis. And it is about keeping a wish list for them, even if they're not going to buy it right now. And it is about helping them style things that they currently own or understanding what to do with something or what they should aspirationally be looking at in the future, even if they're not buying it right now. It's about all of those things. Um, it's not about the transaction at the moment. So I think what we're hoping is that the experience and the customer journey that Garmenteer encourages and sort of guides the retailer to offer the customer and, you know, leads the customer into itself, um, that's going to be really different than the current retail journey. 
Totally, totally. I, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I think, you know, we, we've been talking now about kind of, or we've mentioned at least, you know, your your roadmap for 2022. And I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit towards, yeah. um, you know, we mentioned fundraising. So that usually involves, uh, you know, pitching. And uh, we talked previously a little bit about this, but, um, you know, I, I love kind of a perspective and, and some sort of guidance you gave uh, pre-show about the art of pitching and some of the lessons you've learned over your time uh, as a CEO and just throughout sales? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I definitely think that practice makes perfect. That's for one. Um, And I remember the same exact thing happened with uh, sales at the very beginning. I just remember shutting myself in a closet and doing cold calls um, (laughs) to like people and asking them to buy like, you know, absurdly large suits anyway. Um, but the point is, um, I think I always thought that my initial pitches were so good and most salespeople are like, yeah, that was great. Right. (laughs) And you don't know that it's bad until you start getting better at it. And now when I look back, like when I looked back to some of my first messages that I ever wrote in sales, they were like these huge long paragraphs and, you know, it was like these Facebook messages that were a novel. And it was, it's like mortifying to think about now. Cause I'm like, if I would have received that, I'd have been like, you're insane. Um, and I also would have read it. Right. And so you learn uh, over time that pitching is like flirting. You have to give people enough information where they're excited to learn more, but not word vomit on them. Um, but I was telling you about that book that I read, which was really helpful too. Um, and any founder who's pitching should read this. It's called the three minute rule. Um, and it really, you know, the premise is like, everyone thinks their business is complicated. We all think our business is really complicated. It's not. And you need to be able to drill it down into three minutes and here's how. Um, so I thought that was a really fun one, but you definitely fall on your face a lot before you get good and you, <laughs> Even getting good is subjective, so you don't know. (laughs) But the more you do it, the better you get, and the more of a rhythm you get, and the more confident you get. So, and another topic we kind of hit upon um, that I think is interesting one that I haven't really touched on much with founders that have been on the show um, because I've talked to VCs about this and leading. You know, VCs kind of an apprenticeship business. You have to have mentors. You have to have people that kind of you can closely follow and, and learn from. But how have you kind of gone, around, you know, gone about finding mentors and people that you trust um, while you're on kind of this founder's journey? I mean, you come from a company that's just, again, like one of the more storied ones in Chicago. And I'm sure there's plenty of people there that you learned a ton from. But I guess in this journey you're in now, how do you think about mentors? How do you seek them out? Yeah, um, a couple things. So one of the best things I ever got, and I thank Brian Spaley for this, is the opportunity to build a network that I built while working at Trunk Club. And obviously, I think, like I said, the the most amazing thing about it was the people and the relationships. But it was with coworkers. It was with extended network from coworkers. It was with clients, et cetera. So I think um, that was that was really key for me. So building relationships with that team and maintaining them and keeping them and their now friendships over the years from anywhere from like, you know, the salesperson or, you know, associate level to an executive level. um, I've not been shy to ask them. And I definitely don't think I've ever been shy to, you know, acknowledge where I need help and find people to support that. So that's been a really amazing part. And I've been easily able to ask, you know, a lot of these former clients, a lot of my former colleagues and all of that kind of stuff um, for that. So I have no problem approaching anyone. Um, But 
I also don't have a problem approaching strangers. So there was a, a event that I went to uh, virtually called Shop Talk. And we were talking in a group and there's this woman, Tracy, she's head of innovation for Gap um, and operations, something else in operations. But um, we were talking in a group setting and I just remember thinking she is brilliant and I need her. And the moment after I just sent her an email and I was like, I need to talk to you like one, one, I really am like, you know, think you're incredible. Da, da, da. And we set up a call for the following week and I told her how amazing she was. And here's what I was like building. And, you know, I would love her opinions and potentially to be an advisor for this, that, the other thing. So I think it's just like, when you see it, grab it. When you know that somebody's valuable to you, grab it and never be afraid to ask anyone. I've reached out to the randomest people that don't know me, blind reach out. And that's, I mean, we, that's how we got an intro to Saks. I reached out to the head of retail on LinkedIn. <laughs> so I was like, Hey, what's up? I think we can help you. Um, but you know, I think it's, I think it's just about going for it. Cause at the end of the day, these are all humans. We're all humans and people like to, um, see you succeed. They also want to succeed themselves and you making them feel honored by asking them hopefully is. Yeah, no, totally. I would completely echo all of that. And it's such a great, great way to put it. That's kind of my entire VC experience has been thus far. It's just, you know, complete moonshots, reading, reaching out to people. And I think, yeah, most people, you'd be shocked uh, how reciprocal a lot of people are. Yeah. Even if they're the head of a fund or the head of a company. Um, What's the worst that could happen? Exactly. They say no, then you move on with your life. It's the same reason I started this company. I was like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? It doesn't work out and I go get a job okay, well, everybody has to get a job. So I think we're okay. Like, you know, you have to, you have to be willing to put yourself out there, but I mean, not everyone's going to go start a company, but you can reach out (laughs) to someone for a mentor. (laughs) Um, No, I love that. Um, Lisa, uh, in our, in our closing minutes, this has been amazing. I I just love to hear kind of your perspective on, you know, being a founder in Chicago. I'm not sure if you guys are fully remote, if you're headquartered here in Chicago, but I know you spent, you know, a good amount of time here. So I would love to just hear your perspective on that. Yeah, we're remote. We have people in Seattle and Atlanta and LA and Denver. Um, we're a COVID-born company. So of course we're remote, um, which is challenging at times. I actually find it to be great from the flexibility standpoint, but you really do want to see people in person. And so I've been able to, you know, I've had to travel around for various reasons and been able to work with a lot of our team in person, or I guess everyone. And um, <clears throat> it's really fulfilling to be able to see them. So I think that's important. You have to find a way to draw yourselves together. I think because we were a COVID born or grown company, um, we really started growing at that point. We kind of tried to stay close out of the gates and we really just miss seeing each other. So we make, you know, being social, even online, a big part of our culture. Um, And then as far as the startup scene in Chicago, it's really interesting. Um, it's very different, obviously, than Coastal. And I don't think that the founders get enough exposure from Coastal VCs. I think that Coastal VCs move way quicker. They take more risks. Um, and certainly from my sector in terms of retail, I think Chicago is a little slower. But at the same time, I also find it to be a much... Um, a much more tight knit environment. And so when you are in that kind of circle, you can easily get introductions to other people. 
But yeah, I think it's growing. I think it's, you know, improving every day. I think it's becoming bigger. Chicago's startup ecosystem is robust and it has been for a while. And I think the VC um, market is starting to grow even more to sort of like support that around it. No, I think that's that's such a good point. I think a lot of your comments are very much echoed by some of the other founders I've had on the show. Um, but but I think yeah, it's true. I think I I, I would was kind of shocked to see um, you know the the fact that you were sort of based in Chicago because in my head I'm like oh like you should you be in New York you know like yeah. is there like is the, but I don't know anything about the fashion scene especially DTC <laughs> you know like I, I know nothing. <laughs> it's technology. It would actually be more convenient if we were based in New York, but um, mainly from the you know, aspect of meeting with retailers, but it hasn't really mattered since COVID. So I imagine, you know, in the future, we would have an office there, but I don't think it's like crucial. Um, And I think everybody's going to be able to figure out remote working environments. I like to hop around anyway. We don't have to be based in Chicago. Our idea was to be able to have satellite offices in like New York, LA, Denver, Chicago, Seattle. Um, but I think it's, I think you just want to provide somewhere for your team to go work when they want to and, and be able to see each other in person. But I don't know if I believe in the traditional, like everybody has to leave in one place. Plus you open up your talent pool massively when you hire outside. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the ecosystem in Chicago, I really love what you're doing with this podcast because it makes VC and raising capital, Um, And certainly the Chicago VC market a bit more approachable. And I think if there's one thing that I would wish more about VC in general, whether it's Silicon Valley, whether it's Chicago, whether it's anywhere, is the approachability for founders, right? Feeling like, okay, I understand what they're about and I understand what their goals are. And transparently, this is what they're after and this is how I can go get that. But like, they're also real humans, and they're not these just like pie in the sky people that I should be scared to talk to. Right. Um, so I think that the approachability factor um, is what we all hope to see and strive for ourselves. And I think this does that. So props to you. Well, I mean, you just bought yourself an invite back to the show anytime you want. That's the deal. If you throw you throw compliments our way, you're you're automatically invited back. <laughs> I like that. Okay, I like your hat. Um, <laughs> um, no, but this is this is fun. I love this, and yeah. I'm sure I can't wait to listen to your other episodes with other founders. Yeah, Lisa, thank you so much for hopping on. This is a true pleasure. Uh, if people want to find you, follow you, learn more about the company, where should they go? So my Instagram is Lisa Bubes. My last name is B-U-B-E-S. It's like ice cubes, but with a B. Um, Garmenteer is www.garmenteer.co. And on Instagram, it's also garmenteer.co. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find us. And lots of cool stuff. Um, our website actually doesn't say a ton about our enterprise, you know, journey, <laughs> our enterprise product right now, um, because it's still sort of under wraps. We don't want to go zero to a million and whatnot and take on more than we can bite off more than we can chew. Um, but it will be coming out soon. And uh, yeah, super excited about it. So anyone wants to get in touch, shoot me a note. And the email is lisa at garmenteer.co. Awesome. Lisa, thanks so much. Take care.